You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Before we begin with the podcast, the NBA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to association member Bike Flights for their continued support of the NBA and retailers at large. BikeFlights.com is a bicycle shipping service and a supplier of bike shipping boxes offering low costs, excellent service, and on-time delivery. Since 2009, BikeFlights has made it easy for more than a million people, including individuals, bike shops, events, and cycling industry businesses, to ship bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence. They've been working to get more people on bikes, plus have been advocating for safer roads and more and better trails to ride, race, and explore. Bike Flights is a company that's committed to sustainability. Learn more at bikeflights.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is MBDA President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry. And since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. We truly believe when we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. The NBDA is a nonprofit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join online at nbda.com. Today's podcast episode is a recording of a fireside chat around e-bike explosion, fire safety, and what you, the retailer, needs to know. This conversation happened live via the MBDA web platform on May 24th, 2022. Listen in as MBDA president myself chats with four experts around the safe storage of lithium-ion batteries, around the UL2849 code. We are joined in this fireside chat by George Healy, Deputy Chief, New York City Fire Department, along with Jay Townley, Resident Futurist at Human Powered Solutions, Mike Fritz, Chief Technology Officer at Human Powered Solutions, and Ibrahim Julian from UL. He's the Global Director of Consumer Technology. Really important conversation and proud to bring this to you in the podcast today. I hope you enjoy. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on behalf of the National Bicycle Dealers Association. We cannot thank enough our association members, retailers, and deep membership base for continuing to show up to these important webinars to learn, share, and ask questions that will allow us to continue to improve our industry and your business practices. Electric bicycles have become the fastest growing segment of the bicycle business. This development is changing the face of conventional bicycle retailing. Forward-looking bike shops have embraced the sale and service of e-bikes as an important and profitable aspect of your business. Recent news in both trade and consumer publications around e-bike risks and safety have prompted attention on the classification of bicycles and lithium-ion batteries. In response to the amount of data, the NBDA has teamed up with experts to offer this four-part super webinar series regarding e-bikes. In today's fireside chat, and I know we've gotten quite a few comments about the use of fireside chat, but in today's fireside chat, we are joined by four experts who will help us understand the risks, speak to UL2849, the National Safety Standard for Electrical Bicycle Systems, and also guidance for retailers on the safe 
lithium ion battery storage and charging procedures for shops and consumers alike. We're gonna encourage questions throughout and I'm joined here today and would like to give a warm welcome, NBDA Development Director, Rochelle Scouten, Ibrahim Julian, UL Global Director of Consumer Technology, George Healy, Deputy Chief of New York City Fire Department, Jay Townley, Resident Futurist at Human Powered Solutions, and Mike Fritz, Chief Technology Officer at Human Powered Solutions. Hello. It's critical, just before we started today's webinar, I gave thanks to our panel of experts for joining us. This is really important information. What we're about to cover is important not only to our industry, but our families, our friends, the consumers purchasing these bikes. This is real information that could potentially save and change lives. Before we begin, Rochelle Scouten, NBDA Development Director, has a few tips for participation in today's chat. Hi, thank you so much for being here. I just wanted to remind everyone, we would love to have questions throughout. If you do have a question as people are talking, please use the chat. We'll get to them as we go along, or we're going to save a lot of the questions to the end just so that to help the flow of the conversation. If you want to participate by asking questions aloud, there's a raise hand feature on Zoom and we can call on you at the end and we can have a chat that way. We do ask that while other people are talking that you keep yourself muted, just to be respectful of the current speaker. And if you could place your name and your shop name or company name in your Zoom aim area, we can more easily identify you to call on you for questions. Thank you. Thanks, Rochelle. All right, let's kick it off. I'd like to introduce Ibrahim Julian, the UL Global Director of Consumer Technology. He's an influential speaker and a motivator for public safety, security, and sustainability. Thanks for joining us. Could you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and your role at UL? Sure, Heather. Well, first, thank you, National Bicycle Dealers Association, for having UL here. Background on me is I'm 17 years now with UL. I started as a certification engineer, which is an engineer that is taking a look at product manufacturers' products and checking them for compliance against known published standards. My father is also a 40-year customer of UL, so I actually became very familiar with the company from a very young age. And he used to do a lot of, and being a mechanical engineer, he used to do a lot of projects and compliance work right at the dinner table. So I got very familiar very early on on how to look at products from the standpoint of electric shock fire and explosion safety. Nowadays, I'm responsible for a UL service portfolio in the consumer technology sector that includes e-bikes and the whole micromobility segment as a whole. Thank you for being here. Well, I think where most of us are familiar with UL and the certification that can be found on many devices that we're using day in and day out. In your words, and you know, UL has been referred to and advocated from people for bikes and others as the standard for e-bike battery safety and testing. In your words, why are electric bicycles increasing the risk? You know, why are we here today? You know, what are we seeing? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think you know it's important to think about electrical products. So you kind of think about the history of UL, 100 plus year old company started in the foundations of electricity when electricity started taking off in United States, when Tesla and Edison were battling it out, one of the things that was also happening was the insurance industry of America figuring out whether or not they were going to insure buildings with electricity. And they were very concerned that if electricity gets brought into a building, the fire risk of the building goes way up. And how are they going to write policies? So lo and behold, the underwriters laboratories, the laboratory for the underwriter got created, which is you know how we got our namesake. 
And over the years, over the decades, whenever new technologies came to the market, we worked on putting together public safety announcements and information, as well as working with industry to make safety standards. So when the first toaster came out, when the first cell phone came out, when the first laptop came out, every product as they're evolving and becoming available on the market and that kind of product hadn't existed before, UL did its part to work with industry to put together safety requirements and then, of course, put together certification programs around those safety requirements. So in the world of e-bikes, there hadn't been a product safety standard that, that existed in North America. And we started our work back in 2014 to engage with different industry stakeholders to put together some safety requirements. Some of the learnings of what took place in 2015 with hoverboards and what went down with a lot of fires in the Christmas season of 2015 into the Q1, Q2 timeframe of 2016, you know, what we learned in the hoverboard case is that you have a lithium battery operated product that has a large battery pack that has electric motors and has a lot of electrical components that are brought together as a system. Well, they weren't being evaluated as a system. They weren't being evaluated as an end product. And similarly for e-bikes, that story was there too, that you have all these electrical components that are getting put together, a motor, a battery cell going into a battery pack, the battery pack and the motor getting married up on the frame of the e-bike, the charger also being part of the electrical system. When all those parts are being put together, it's got to work as a system. And I think what happens a lot of times is maybe what is being introduced or being brought forward to a dealership as a product that's ready to go to be you know, sold in the marketplace. If it's a lot of picking and choosing of parts and not a lot of thought on the system approach of how these different components are going to act together, well, that's going to raise the risk of electric shock and fire and explosion specific to the nature of lithium batteries. You know, for those of us that are on this call, probably most of us are familiar or heard of thermal runaway. That is basically a scientific term now that means that your heat generation is faster than the ability to dissipate that heat. And when the heat generation becomes to a point of no return, that's a runaway. And that runaway then results in explosions and that the inside materials of a lithium cell catches on fire. It's usually potassium hydroxide and some of the plastic separator material catches on fire and then shoots out of the cell and creates a fire explosion condition. That can happen for a number of reasons. Most often what we'll hear in media reports is folks will talk about the cell having poor quality, but there's actually quite a bit of electrical properties that if a cell is told to take on certain types of charge currents, or if the cell is told by its electronics to allow for certain operating parameters, well, that is going to degrade or affect the cell's ability to perform in the long run. And so there's a lot of things that the system could be telling the cell to do that were just wrong from the beginning, that the design and the engineering that went into how to make the battery pack or what the e-bike motor control told the battery management system that then told the battery cell what to do. They're just not communicating the right ways. Well, that can create an unsafe condition. Similarly, with the electric motors, they can actually have you know, things that can cause them to go into a locked rotor state or certain kinds of things that can cause the windings inside the electric motor to increase in heat and then have a thermal event that then can trigger some other propagation hazards. So I think what's happening with e-bikes and the world of the bicycle dealerships is that you know, you're thinking of the electrical products that are coming in the e-bike to be similar to what you have maybe in your back store. You have power tools, you have uh, lighting products, you have other things that you're using to run your store. Well, if you think about it, all those other products that were in the, the back room, 
you were safeguarded because they actually were required to have third-party certification. There are rules 29 CFR 1910 subpart S. That is a law for OSHA. And that law says that workplace equipment, electrical equipment needs to have be listed and labeled, meaning that it must have a third party that looked at it and certified it. Similarly for e-bikes, when they're used in workplace, we should think about it in those terms as well. But certainly if they're going to be near employees that are then going to sell it to the public, that is a law to be very familiar with because it would really, you know, create the sense of urgency in dealerships to understand that there is a need to make sure that a third party has looked at that e-bike and checked it for its design, its construction, its materials, as well as the testing that it met the the requirements of, of the standard UL 2849. Yeah, I know you're super passionate about this subject. You know, when I first reached out, you called me right away. We had a great conversation. For the retailers who are just joining us, UL.com is a fantastic website to learn more. And I have done some, you know, research on this, and I know that it's thousands of hours of testing, I think, goes into getting this certification. Just speaking to some of the safety standards that we should be aware of when, you know, e-bikes, micromobility in general, can you speak to some, you know, the consumer robots that are coming? Can you speak to some of those safety standards that we should be aware of? Sure, sure. And I should clarify, when you do, when a product is certified, There are a few hundred hours probably in testing. It's not thousands. Thousands went into the research to get to the point of having a standard. But in terms of an actual product that someone submits, I want to balance so that no one freaks out in the audience. You know, you all does have, when we put standards together and they're consensus-based, industry is weighing in on the practicality of the testing as well. So that there's a balance between what manufacturers other stakeholders like like a retailer and of course what a testing company like UL would want to have as a set of requirements so that it's not overly cumbersome nor is it going to miss anything critical 2849 is the key standard for e-bikes if any of the dealers are going to carry hoverboards or e-scooters UL2272 so UL 2849 is for e-bikes whether pedal assist or throttle based UL2272 is for e-scooters or other types of e-mobility devices If you're going to start carrying any kind of consumer commercial robot, that standard is under development. It's called UL3300, 3300, and that's for your service and education, entertainment type of robots that's being covered. So right now, I don't think a lot of uh, bicycle dealerships are seeing that, but give it three, four years, and I think you will. So (laughs) we're seeing a number of companies starting to carry or using robots either to help them run their stores or also as a product to sell to consumers. Yes, those are the probably the three big ones within 2849 and 2272, the micromobility ones, there are call-outs for the components. So the battery pack, one of the requirements will be UL2271, light EV battery pack standard. There are a couple options that you can use, but 2271 is the national standard for light electric vehicle batteries. For chargers, there's several options, UL1012 or UL1310 or UL62368-1. Those come up for the battery chargers and UL has kind of within the end product standard, it gives some allowances for different types of battery chargers to be used as long as it works well in the system. That's okay. A key concept that's important that is covered though in the end product standard, that is kind of the point where a lot of manufacturers stumble or a lot of the dealers also may not have the technical knowledge of is called functional safety. So functional safety is actually checking that the software within a battery management system or the software within the e-bike motor control does what it's supposed to do from a safety critical standpoint. And then also that the hardware is reliable and redundant 
so that if something fails in the hardware, the software doesn't become glitchy. And then all of a sudden you have an unsafe battery pack or an unsafe motor control that then causes havoc on the whole system. So UL2849 does require the e-bike motor control and the battery management system to have its functional safety done. Uh, and so does the UL2272. Thank you. And for our listeners who are, you know, if retailers have any questions, please ask. I know there's a lot of information that we're giving here. Lots of certifications, lots of standards to be aware of. Really important information because this is ensuring that we're selling, we're working on products that are safe, that are going to be able to go into our consumers' homes and not catch on fire and really, you know, quality products. Speaking to this, what should, you know, members of the MBDA or any retailers what should they be requiring if they're going to look at maybe bringing in an e-bike or a scooter or a lithium-ion battery, any equipment with that? You know, is there anything that we should be requiring from our suppliers before accepting shipments? So it is very common that you would have as a, or a dealer for a retailer to have a procurement requirement to say that we're only going to carry a e-bike if it has demonstrated compliance, that it's listed And by listed, that means it could be UL listed or one of the other third-party certifiers. Most of those are the accredited companies from the Occupational Safety Health Administration, OSHA. They have a program called the National Recognized Test Laboratory Program. So any of the companies that are accredited under the OSHA program, you know, that's kind of a list of companies to say that, okay, I, as a dealer, I only want to see a listed 2849 certified e-bike. Be careful as a dealer that if a company says that they've tested to 2849. Testing is less than one third of the standard. The standard actually has tons of construction requirements and design requirements and material requirements. So two thirds of the document have nothing to do with the testing. So I think what's happened in the last couple of years that we've seen is that different companies will provide a test report. A a manufacturer will give to a dealer, here's my test report. The test report will only show that there were some tests and the word passed next to those tests. Well, none of the work to check the construction to design, to write what we call like a description of the product was done. That usually is done by the third party, not by a self-declared manufacturer. And that report actually lives on as a certification document within every third party. So at UL, for example, when we do the certification program for 2849, we're accredited on that. And what happens is our creditors come in, they check to see, did we write up a description of the product? Did we keep a test record of the product? Did we keep data sheets that show the testing, you know, in detail, not just the summary, but also the detailed results? If there was a, you know, and also part of the UL certification, we quarterly inspect the manufacturers four times a year. That's part of the having the UL mark is the fact that we're going to the factory four times a year and checking that the components are and the end products are being made the same as when they were first evaluated. They're going to check that that's being done. You know, it has UL kept records of their inspections along with the initial time that they looked at the product. That all goes on already in so many other industries outside of e-bikes. You know, today you can't really go to a store and not buy a nightlight that's not UL or some some third-party certified. So you can find those little nightlights in any, you know, major big box retailer today. You'll find it always third-party certified. Any humidifier will have third-party certification. And those products, you know, one could argue possess significantly less risk. Obviously, they're being plugged into a 120-volt AC line, but they don't have the explosion hazard that comes as as a result of having lithium in it. And they also don't have the the fire propagation hazard, which 2849 is addressing those type of issues. Thank you. I see a question here from Carlos. Yes. 
Yes. Hi. Thank you for hosting this. I think it's very important. So as this type of dialogue and conversation comes into the industry, what type of backlog and what is UL capable of doing? How many tests could they do at at a given point? And what type of backlog as more and more e-bike companies and e-bike shops want this certification? What do you see coming in the future for this? So within UL, we are being asked by manufacturers to, you know, do take on this work and work with UL. They want to work with us to get certified. And some have accomplished it. There's about a dozen companies, actually close to 15, that are now listed for their e-bikes. And you can go to ul.com slash database. And I think my colleague, Benjamin Cribb, is providing some of the information on how to get there. ul.com slash database is also called our UL Product IQ. And there's a category code specific to e-bikes. And Benji, if you don't mind describing it to the group in the chat window, he'll explain it. But when you look up that category code, you can then look up any every company that has been certified by us. So there's already a list of companies that have completed. And those products there, I'm sure that they're telling, they'll go out to the market and say, we are UL listed and share that with everybody. If a company approaches us today, we're able to complete that work in short order. It's just a matter of how prepared the product manufacturer is and you know how much they got their ducks in a row from the standpoint of their e-bike and their components. And where in the world do they want the service delivered? You know, Sometimes some of their supply chain could be in Taiwan, could be in China, could be in Japan. So I, I make sure from my side that I'm aligning operations teams within those parts of the world that align to their ODMs or OEMs that are in those parts of the world. But it's really a conversation that a dealer needs to have directly with whichever manufacturer you're seeking to provide you product and say, hey, have you contacted UL? Are you you know, ensuring that you're moving forward? Now, another point too is UL is not the only person that they could contact. There's a few choices they have, but that's up to every dealer to make the decision on who they allow as third-party provider that's certifying these e-bikes. So as mentioned in the call, you know, there is a national recognized test laboratory group of companies that can be looked up on OSHA's website. And, you know, several of those companies do work in the e-bike category, not all of them, but several of them do, including UL. And those are the options for the manufacturer then to choose which companies they want to have certified their e-bikes. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Your NBDA membership helps support Bicycle Retail Radio. Go to nbda.com to join or renew your membership today. And I'm going to keep moving here. There's lots of questions in the chat. I'm going to take one more question now from James Moore on the label. James, what was your question? Yeah, these companies that are producing these really low-end e-bikes using flagrantly counterfeited parts, what's to keep them from just counterfeiting a UL label? Does the UL label give us any real assurance that this has been tested and passed? Glad you bring up counterfeit of UL. That's against the law in every part of the world. So UL has a very large anti-counterfeit and brand protection group. We work with Interpol. We work with the Department of Justice. We go after counterfeit very hard. You can actually look up, you know, if you type in UL counterfeit, you'll find lots of companies that have been brought to trial on that. So it is to the detriment of a counterfeit of any company that would lie about their certification. And also, if there's a question, you can just reach out to UL. You know, we're you know easy to reach out to. Didn't take Heather more than one email to get in touch with us. So it's not super difficult to you know, double check with UL, say, is this certified by you? We'll check in our database. We'll say, okay, well, give us the manufacturer and model name, and we'll be able to look that up. And if it's not, then we flag it and we give it to our market surveillance group. The market surveillance group at UL then checks to see, is it a accidental situation, a fraudulent claim? 
And if they find that it's fraudulent, then they go right to our brand protection group, which is a bunch of ex-detectives, or actually, actually they're still detectives, but they're now on UL's payroll, not on a, a police force somewhere. And then they do their work to you know, bring the matter to a, a court at some point. So there is a lot of IP protection that UL has on the UL certified products. And we work very hard to keep manufacturers honest. Thank you. There's lots of great conversation in the chat going on. And we do have a UL specific webinar coming up in June that I see Rochelle put the link to. So we'll keep that going. I'm going to move over to Jay Townley now, future resident futurist at Human Powered Solutions. As Ibrahim states, retailers should require this proof. But what kinds of proof of testing besides the website that he noted should bike shops be asking suppliers to provide, Jay? Well, thank you for that. I'll repeat what Heather has said. There's actually four webinars in this series. So there will be other opportunities to get into questions, plus ask your questions in between, certainly, if we don't get to them today. I'm going to ratchet up just a step. Ibrahim has talked about the UL standard, which we need to know about. But what we also know about in this business is the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission regs. They are mandatory, not voluntary. The definition of a bicycle we have discussed, I've written about it several times. You can also check with Heather, but the definition of a bicycle encompasses electric bikes with motors of 750 watts that can achieve with that motor a ground speed of 20 miles per hour. And you can go into the detail of that. That essentially captures class one, class two, as we know it in the trade. So all bicycles, including class one and class two, have to meet the U.S. CPSC regulation. And relative to that, what you ask for is a certification of compliance. Now, in the case of a mandatory standard, for dealers maybe don't know this, so I'll explain it to you. The law requires that you should receive from every one of the manufacturers that you represent, just carrying their brands, you should receive a certificate of compliance. That's for the CPSC portion of the regulation. What's been added to this is for the electric bike you add the system's third-party certification from the testing that Abrams talked about. So a bicycle in your shop, if it's got an electric assist that is 750 watts and also the 20-mile-an-hour speed, you have to meet both CPSC and the UL 2849. What you ask for in the case of the CPSC portion and all other non-electric assist bicycles is what is referred to in the trade is a GCC. And that simply stated is a general certification of conformity. That will be provided by the manufacturer. They've got them on file. In addition, you, and by the way, I'll just add that if you're dealing with bicycles that are intended for children 12 years of age or younger, there's actually a children's product certification. The GCC is for bicycles that are intended for 13-year-old and older. The children's product certification, the CPC, is what you would ask for bicycles intended for children 12 years of age or younger. That can be, as we understand it, an electronic form. does not have to be a hard copy. In addition to that, ask the brand and manufacturer if they're providing you with an electric assist product. You want the UL 2849 certification of compliance. And Ibrahim's explained to you what that is and how you get it. To James Moore's point, we've got a lot more to discuss and to learn, but we are going to move toward at some point those UL standards being either labeled or embossed or in some way on the components of the systems. 
And at this point, some of the 12 to 15 brands that Ibram referred to that are listed on the UL site as being currently tested and certified by third-party approved labs may or may not, but they've got some proof of certification. So to answer the question, there's two things that you ask for. You ask for the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission. In the case of most of your products, you want to get that GCC from the brand or supplier, the General Certification of Conformity. For children's bicycles intended for children 12 years of age or younger, you want a CPC or a children's product certification. You can go to the CPSC website to get more information about these two certificates and what they look like. And as I say, we understand clearly that it doesn't have to be a hard copy. It can be an electronic form, but that is what retailers should reach out to their brands and ask for. Jay, how often should they be asking for this just as a follow-up? Well, you could check with your insurance agent or broker. The insurance broker to the bicycle, especially bike retail channel of trade is on the call, Scott Chapin. So you could ask Scott. I'm sure he can refer this to the insurance companies that he writes most of your insurance in the specialty side of the business for. But check with your insurance company and ask them, ask your broker, ask your legal advisor if you wish. What we recommend is annually for the lines of product that are relatively stable, And because these are systems, you know, in Ibram's case, it's an electronic system. So if that system changes, we're assuming that you would have to go in and get recertification for the new system. The same applies to a bicycle. The CPSC, a pedal-only bike, not electric assist, a CPSC is, is designed or has a set of requirements. Now, I'll be the first to tell you in the case of CPSC, they're old. They need to be updated. That doesn't matter. They're mandatory. They are required. So the certification for them, we feel should be annually and in between for every new model type or new system that's introduced. Think of it as a system, the new bicycle system, electric assist or not. Every time a new system is introduced, check with the brand and ask for the certification. And they'll tell you whether that they feel that it's already covered by the certifications you've got or needs to be covered by a new form. And we think that Also, that means that it's annual, no less than annual. And then in between, if there's a new product introduced, ask and make sure that they've got the testing and the certification for it. Fabulous. Thank you. And then with this, you know, if they do get proof, should they be maintaining records? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In this day and age, there is no question because If a CPSC inspector or George will get to this, if a New York or you get to the fire departments, if a building inspector comes in or if there is a fire inspector coming into your business um, and wants to see proofs of certification for products or systems, you must have them on file. Now, you can do that, we think, electronically. But again, check with your attorney, check with your insurance broker, make sure that you're keeping the type of records that your insurer, that your legal advisor uh, is basically telling you is the best thing for you to do as a business person. But the answer is yes. Either keep hard copy uh, certifications on file or electronic. And for the term or the amount of time you need to keep them, we unfortunately (laughs) advise that that be long term. It's probably a couple of decades worth of data that you should keep. But again, I'll repeat, be advised and guided by your legal advisor, by your insurance broker, by your insurance company, 
And in the case of UL, we certainly would talk to Ibram and his staff to make sure that we know what it is. And we will be reaching out and learning more and gathering more information on this very important topic as we go forward. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, we've seen a lot of recent press recently and horrible images and videos of the fires and the remnants of the space that our fellow retailers stores following the incident. It's just awful and very much heartbreaking. I want to welcome George Healy, Deputy Chief, uh, Fire Chief, New York City Fire Department. George, thanks for being here. What concerns are you having around lithium-ion batteries? Thanks for having me today. It really is a pleasure. And, and this is very important and good dialogue. It's probably overdue in a lot of industries. So we are seeing a significant uptick, not necessarily just specific to electric bikes, but we are realizing a significant uptick in fire-related injuries and even deaths, just for kind of a benchmark in 2021, our Bureau of Fire Investigation looked at 104 incidents that they deemed were started by lithium-ion batteries, which also led to 79 injuries and tragically four deaths. This year, as of about three weeks ago, we were up to 52 of these fires with nine injuries and one death. So from my perspective, and I've I've been blessed. I've been in the fire service for 31 years. I've been involved with underwriters laboratories and their research on multiple levels for several years. I think the codes, and Ibrahim spoke very well about the codes. This is an emerging technology. So the codes are working together with both the manufacturers and the safety folks and the fire service to try to make sure that we have standards and you know, one of the big challenges, as he spoke to, is making sure that what is, as you believe to be a listed product, is truly listed. But I want to focus a little bit on, as he spoke, the systems. And I think this is something where the manufacturers and the retailers can come to the forefront to assist. You know, when you sell this product, it is a system. It's the bicycle, it's the motor, it's the battery, it's the charger, and maybe some education with the final purchaser to let them know that, yes, this is a system and the system is designed and tested as that, an integral system. And if your charging cable breaks, there's an appropriate charging cable that's designed and tested for this system. If your battery malfunctions and you need to replace it, and I think that's what the fire service is starting to understand. And you also have to realize that this is now also becoming like a cottage industry. Some of what we're realizing, and not necessarily a manufacturer issue or a sales issue, but ultimately it becomes a fire issue, is in certain places, this is almost becoming a cottage industry, not only for servicing, but we're starting to realize that people are charging individuals to bring their bicycles to them at night and charge their bicycles. Maybe people that are getting electric and not necessarily paying the full amount for the electric. So we're having some of these fires where we're pulling a dozen or more bicycles out of these properties. Certainly, that's not any longer just a residential personal use. It appears that there's charging being done. It appears that there's work being done. And the other thing, and Ibrahim can speak to this, I've been involved in some of the battery testing that UL has done. And to get the battery into that excited state, into that thermal runaway, it's generally by introducing it to, to elevated temperatures 
or some sort of mechanical damage. And I think that also needs to be part of the education to the end user. And it's kind of ironic. A friend of mine who's also in the fire service was just away on a conference and he was in a town that had the electric scooters available for purchase or for, for renting to sightsee and see the town. Well, unfortunately, one night out on the, the electric scooter, he crashed and he was a trauma patient. He was put into the hospital and had significant traumatic type injuries, blunt force from the crash. But where did that device go? That device just went back on a street corner for somebody else to use. And then ultimately, at some point, to be brought into a structure to be recharged. So I think we maybe need to also come to a consensus that, yes, we need standards, we need appropriate standards, but we also have to have that education component for the dealers and for the end users that we are selling you this product, this is the right charger for this product, this is the right battery for this product, and if there's a failure of either of them, they should come back here to a certified dealer so we can make sure that it gets replaced with something that is appropriate for that system. And also, if there is significant physical damage, whether it be from a drop, a fall, or something of that nature, that also there has to be something in place where these batteries can be tested to ensure that this is not the first step towards thermal runaway. Thank you, George. And such an important point you brought up there. And the MBDA is working with Mike Fritz and the team at Human Powered Solutions to offer some guidance to retailers on educating consumers. Just would you advise bicycle retailers or any people storing lithium ion batteries to advise their local fire department that they're doing so? You know what? Dialogue with the fire service is never a bad thing. Certainly, that would be something that we'd like to know especially, you know, things that are challenging for us below grade fires. So if you have a bike shop and actually part of my ride home, I still, I'm old school, I'm on my conventional bike. I don't have an electric one, but certainly if you were the owner of a bike shop and you have 30 or 40 of these in your cellar, that would be something that would be good to let the fire service know to have that dialogue. Thank you. And then, you know, I'm sure you've had firsthand experience with a fire caused by a battery from what I've seen and, and heard that these fires produce a heat unlike a typical fire. Can you describe just what we're dealing with in the case that something does happen, the best course of action? Well, I mean, I think unfortunately, once these batteries get into this excited state of going to thermal runaway, there's not a lot that especially an individual can do. The recommendation would always be to get yourself to safety and call the fire department. But certainly if you sense that a battery was hot to the touch, or if you started hearing something prior to thermal runaway, I would certainly try to disconnect that device from the power source. And if you could remove it, you know, outside, this isn't, you know, and, and this just seems to be the most recent of hot topics, right? As Ibrahim spoke, you know, the electric scooters had issues. Remember years ago, there was issues with e-cigarettes and could we bring an e-cigarette on a plane? And even the cell phone industry has had its challenges. The lithium ion batteries are everywhere. If you think about your home, if you have a, you know, a, an electric screwdriver, if you have a laptop, if you have cell phones, they are everywhere. Certainly, if I had one of these devices, my desire would be not to store it in the house if that was at all possible, if we had a shed. But again, just be mindful that, yes, if it is certified, they are safe products. They are products that are going to be part of our environment. But certainly, if there's any mechanical damage done to it, I would say that somebody that has the knowledge and the ability to ensure that it is safe ongoing 
and the education component to people when they buy these products that you are buying something that can potentially have some hazards. It is part of a system and it's not something that should be, you know, home repair or, or things of that nature. These batteries, although we might be able to connect it to another charger, if that charger wasn't designed for that battery, you should get the appropriate charger because you don't want to go down that path. Because once these fires, you know, we're seeing them at a more significant rate than in the past. And the thing with these fires are once they go into thermal runaway, it's very difficult to ensure that thermal runaway has been stopped that there won't be subsequent failures. You know, you can look at things, and I'm sure Ibrahim can speak for hours, but, you know, some of these batteries, they'll fail, and it appears that they're in a steady state, everything's fine, and a day or so later, there's thermal runaway again. So we're still starting to learn about some of the hazards of of these technologies, and we're going to have to work together to find the most appropriate solutions to ensure that you know, they can be in all places of, of work and play safely. Thank you, George. I just have one more question for you. And it's, we know that some updated New York fire codes recently, we do have a question. What do e-bike retailers need to know to stay compliant with the updated New York fire codes? You know what? I'm actually not prepared at this point to speak to the code. I know it's an evolving and changing environment. I would recommend that you can certainly call the New York City Fire Department or 311 in New York City and say that you have questions and they will certainly be able to send you the most appropriate person that can answer those more technical questions. George, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you on the call today. And, you know, with firsthand experience, you're seeing the numbers increase. It's very important that we're selling product and, you know, storing it appropriately. Let's turn it over to Mike Fritz now, Chief Technology Officer at Human Powered Solutions. I know he has done and is doing extensive study in educating the industry on the risk and handling of lithium-ion batteries. Mike, can you just speak a little bit to the work you've done and that you are doing? Sure, Heather. Thank you very much. And thank you, George. Your discussion was a beautiful segue into my segment of the uh, webinar today because the first topic I want to address is what should a retailer advise the consumer as he's delivering an electric bike relative to primarily lithium-ion battery safety as they bring that bike home? What should they do to ensure that they're not going to have an unfortunate incident such as we've been discussing? And we at Human Part Solutions, we're on a crusade, and Heather can vouch for this. We're doing our best to identify guidelines not only for retailers. We've had two webinars to date talking about our perspective on safe practices in the retail environment. Now we want to carry it on to the consumers because clearly as as the end users, their understanding and knowledge and precautions, if you will, are vitally important to ensure a, a safe result. Speaking to that, from our perspective, if I owned a shop, the first thing that I would do upon delivering an electric bicycle to a customer is to advise them that we're dealing with a fantastic technology here. The amount of energy that we can store in a lithium ion battery pack, given its uh, lightweight and small size, is very much incredible. And essentially, lithium ion batteries, that technology has enabled electric mobility. There's no way that we would have some of the conveyances that we have today that are electric and clean in the environment were not for these lithium ion batteries. But that very attribute, the fact that it can store so much energy, presents a risk. The risk of uncontrolled release of that energy can be catastrophic. So, but 
I would also strive to ensure that to the customer that especially if they're buying a quality product that's had the certifications and the testing that we've discussed in this webinar up until now, the chances of their experiencing a, an event of this nature are minuscule, but they're not zero. It's still possible that under, under certain circumstances, a fire can result in utilizing some of the techniques and precautions that we advise will reduce that risk even further. And as George alluded, the first one on my list is you only use the charger that was supplied with that battery pack with your electric bicycle. You do not try to charge it with any other battery charger. You don't try to charge it with a power supply. As Ibrahim was emphasizing, these are systems. And as systems, each component is balanced to its mating component. And it's critically important that the functionality of those components are in synchronization. And you lose a battery charger, if that battery charger is damaged, replace it with an identical charger from the supplier. Do not try to use a secondary battery. Charging it on the bike is oftentimes a question. We think it's a good idea to charge the battery on the bike. And for the simple reason that if an event occurs, if the battery does exhibit signs of a potential issue, it's easy to roll it to a safe place um, outside, away from flammable materials, and call the fire department. So charging on the bike is perfectly okay. Some people may find it more convenient to charge off the bike. And in that particular case, we recommend that if you're charging the bicycle from the bicycle, or if you're charging the battery off the bicycle, you charge it on a non-flammable surface. Put it on the concrete floor in your garage. Don't put it on a wooden workbench. For goodness sakes, don't bring it in the kitchen and put it on your kitchen counter. Uh, charge it on a non-flammable surface so that in the event something happens, it's not going to propagate as easily as it might be if it were resting on something flammable. I always recommend that you charge the battery pack in an area with a working smoke detector. These batteries, when they fail, they telegraph the fact that they're in, in impending fail. It starts slow, usually with a single cell that will emit smoke and, and ultimately flame, but that can trigger a smoke detector that will alert you to the fact that this battery is in trouble. You need to take remedial action. That action can be, if you can safely do it, get the battery pack outdoors because that's going to be the least hazardous scenario and get it outdoors and head back in the house and call 911 get the fire department on site probably my cardinal rule and i say this every time i talk about battery safety never charge a lithium battery unattended you know you always have it within your radius where you can sense if it is telegraphing an impending failure you'll know about it if the battery is unattended or if you're charging it overnight in a garage and something goes wrong nobody's there to intervene so never charge the battery unattended never charge it unattended overnight charge it when you're in the vicinity so that you can react if a, an occurrence happens the other issue is that you should monitor the battery and the charger and periodically check it set a timer for yourself to remind you after an hour or two hours or three hours whatever it might be go out and check to see if the charger is indicating that the pack is fully charged if it is fully charged Disconnect it from the charger, turn off the charger and disconnect it from the battery, put it back on the bike or leave it on the concrete floor such that you're not allowing it to be connected to that electrical source indefinitely. The other point, and George alluded to this as well, if that battery is dropped or otherwise damaged, there's a good chance that something has happened internal to it that may set it up for a subsequent failure. If the battery is dropped or damaged, do not attempt to recharge it, do not attempt to use it. Take it to an expert, take it back to the shop, if the shop that you purchased from is participating in the call to recycle program for recycling electric batteries, those dealers have been trained on the necessary skills to identify a battery that's damaged such that it might fail at some point in the future. They also have the materials available to isolate that battery pack to get it into a safe environment until such time as it can be taken to a recycling center. But a damaged battery pack is potentially dangerous and should not be used, nor should it be stored 
near any flammable material or in, in any environment in which a fire could be catastrophic. Along the lines of monitoring the battery when it's on the charger, if you sense something going wrong, if that pack is hot to touch, if it's emanating smoke or unusual noises or whatnot, those are usually the telltale signs that that battery pack is approaching a catastrophic failure. Under those circumstances, if it's safe to do so, we recommend that you get it outside, outdoors, such that it's not going to potentially damage the facility. As I say, these things start slowly. Usually a single cell cooks off and the fire propagates as that, as that cell overheats its neighbors and forces them into thermal runaway. If you can intervene early, you can move it safely and get it outdoors. If it's fully engaged, obviously, if you haven't caught it in time, evacuate. Call the fire department, get the pros on site to, so that they can take whatever action is necessary to get the situation under control. One critically important element, and we hear about this all the time, there's a lot of e-bike riders, a lot of people that are fond of this technology that are tinkerers, and tinkerers tend to like to take things apart. The one thing you must impress upon your consumers is there, A, there's no user serviceable components inside a battery pack, and opening a pack will expose you to danger. If a short circuit happens, if a tool drops into that pack that causes a, a short circuit, you can force the cell into thermal runaway, and then you've got a fire on your hand. They should never, ever open a battery pack. Leave that to the pros and damp down your tinkering influences because it's simply not a very safe thing to do. When a battery pack reaches the end of its useful life, when it no longer holds enough energy to propel you on your mission, you know, be it a leisurely ride or commuting to work, recycle it. Bring it back to the dealer. Hopefully he's participating in a recycling program. He'll have the means to safely transport the battery pack back to a recycling center. We can recover the rare elements that are in that battery pack and use them again. The one thing that we're very adamant about is never purchase a battery or replacement battery from a third-party supplier. If you need a replacement battery pack, buy it from the brand that sold you the bike in the first place. Again, these are systems. As we've talked about for the duration of this discussion, if you've purchased a, a product that has been certified, certified as a system, you will be replacing a system certified component with another system certified component, and that will ensure its safety and use You know, from now on. One big mistake, and it's been the cause of fires in the past, is utilizing refurbished battery packs. There are several agencies out there that claim the ability to take a battery pack, replace old cells with new cells, and return it to you, and it's going to be like new. No, <laughs> they do not have the expertise, the wherewithal, or the testing capabilities to rebuild that pack in a safe and reliable manner. If you need a replacement battery pack, do not procure it from anybody except the original supplier of the bike and the battery pack, because uh, otherwise you're asking for trouble. We're going to elaborate on these points. Uh, we've got another webinar set up, I believe it's on June 2nd, Heather, where we're going to talk specifically and in some more detail relative to how you should be advising your customers relative to lithium-ion battery and e-bike safety in general. And I can go into some more detail given that we'll devote an entire webinar to that topic coming up next week. Thank you, Mike. There's so many important points you just brought up there. And it's really important for me to stress to all the retailers, to everyone on the call, these are not toys. This is a really major safety concern and not to be taken lightly. And thank you for listening intently and for the, all the amazing information in the chat box to everyone on the call who made this possible. Mike, I know there's so much more you have to share about specifically what retailers should tell consumers. And that is June 2nd. And I'm really hopeful that everyone does make time on their calendar for that. Mike, just another question quickly here before we get to maybe one or two questions from our audience. 
often asked by retailers, if a bike brand comes in for service that you do not sell in a store, maybe if a battery pack is brought to your store for service or recycling, what should the retailer do in that case? You know, That's a very good question, Heather, because obviously there's a lot of direct-to-consumer sales going on right now with electric bikes. The pandemic has elevated the demand for e-bikes. Unfortunately, a lot of very inexpensive e-bikes are coming into the country, being sold internet direct to consumers. And you know, we don't know their pedigrees. And given some of the price points that we're seeing, retail price points for these e-bikes, it's got to cause us to think that the battery packs that are being equipped, uh, those bikes are being equipped with are inexpensive battery packs that probably have subpar components in them that haven't been tested, haven't been certified, and do potentially represent a hazard. So if you own a bike shop and someone brings in a Brand X e-bike and wants it serviced, it really becomes a judgment call. What I would recommend initially is that the dealer attempt to learn a little bit more about the pedigree of the bike that's being presented. Where did they get it? How much did they pay for it? If it's an $800 e-bike, I personally wouldn't want it in my shop because if it's an $800 e-bike, it probably means it's a $100 battery pack. And uh, it's not been designed, manufactured, tested, or certified and represents a potential hazard. I would turn down the business. The other thing you might look for, even if it's a quality e-bike that's brought in for service, look for potential damage. If the battery pack shows signs of abuse or a mechanical impact, again, it, it basically boils down to the same concern that we had earlier on with respect to consumers. Damaged battery packs are ticking time bombs. I would not allow it in my store. Or the alternative would be is to advise the customer that in your expert opinion, this is a potential hazard. I wouldn't use it if they participate in the call to recycle program, for example. The dealer has the ability to request a special shipping container, which is essentially a small steel drum that's lined with a fire retardant for returning that potentially hazardous battery pack to a recycling center. So in this particular case, discretion is the better part of valor. If there are any questions whatsoever in your mind relative to the safety and certification status of a bike that's brought in for service, I'd turn down the business and advise them accordingly. Thank you, Mike. Wow, we just ran through an hour here almost <laughs> so quickly. Rochelle, I think maybe we have time for one question. Is there a question that we haven't gotten to in the chat that we'd like to ask the experts? We do have one. Somebody submitted a question. Should shops consider displaying bikes without the battery installed while on the store floor? You want me to take that one? I would not be concerned. Again, if the battery is on a bike in the shop and the shop is open and there's staff around and it's not on a charger, in all likelihood, there's not going to be a problem. It may be a bike that you want to have available for demonstration rides. I mean, anybody that's ever ridden an electric bike knows that there's an aha moment, uh, you know, the first 10 feet that you ride on an e-bike and uh, a demonstration is the best sales tool you've got. I will qualify that though by saying, when the battery pack is on a charger, charge it on the rack. We've got some outstanding recommendations in this regard. And we also recommend that when your shop is closed, that every e-bike in the shop is stored in a fire-resistant container, an explosion-proof container, such that if anything happens while there's no one present, it will be contained until the pros can get there to deal with it. But no, I wouldn't have any concerns about showcasing bikes with the batteries installed yeah. in an open shop. Shouldn't be an issue. I will say this for UL listed products. Uh, we are, that is part of what gets checked when you're certifying the product. Uh, so I wouldn't have any concern at all that if it's a UL listed e-bike that you left the battery pack on it. I also would not have a concern that it got charged overnight. That's not a concern because the electronics have been checked. The software and the hardware has been checked very thoroughly. And that's exactly why that's done so that users don't have to think quadruple times on how they use their product. They can follow the user manual 
without having to come up with their own rules just because, you know, the product was never checked by any third party. But the presumption there is it has been checked and certified. Yeah. So if a dealer is carrying UL listed product, then that's one story. If the dealer is carrying non-UL list or non-certified equipment, that help you. So that's just honest uh, truth that there's a lot of risk you're taking on. Lots of information today here in this hour-long fireside chat. And this is just one of a four-part series. I did just put into the chat box the link to the MBDA event calendar. Please go ahead and get yourself registered for the three upcoming series, one specifically on UL. The second one will be, well, upcoming first is Mike. Actually, Mike Fritz will be doing the what to inform consumers when they are purchasing a lithium-ion battery product from your store. Then we'll have a follow-up session with UL and then Erica Jones on bicycle regulations. We will put this recording on YouTube. We will also have a podcast episode of this recording coming out. Thank you for all the fantastic chat, for the team at UL, for answering the chats in the box, for Human Powered Solutions, for everyone for making time out of your day to show up today. All I can ask is please share the wisdom you learned today with other people. This is a very important subject. We want to prevent as many bad instances from happening as possible. Thanks again, everyone. I hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry, dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If this is your first episode, we urge you to take time and listen to our past episodes. In the podcast, you will find relatable insight and a deeper dive into the heart of the bicycle industry. The show is made possible through advertisements from our sponsors please consider supporting them. You can learn more about advertisements or make a donation to the show online at nbda.com. The easiest way to support the show is to first subscribe, then share your favorite episode with friends and online. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for the editing and promotional graphics with today's episode. Special thanks to today's guests and past episode guests. To MBDA members and cyclists worldwide, we appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. And with this, we go. Peace. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Mm-hmm.